Hello, and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking, and film theory. Each programme will focus on a particular movie. We'll talk about that movie, review it, what our thoughts on it, and use that uh, movie as a jumping off point into a larger film theme. And we'll end with some recommendations, more or less, based on each week's choice, and begin by introducing ourselves. God help us all, it's Rod's turn this week. <laughs> My name's Rob Maythorn. I've spent the last ten years working in the British film industry, working on films like Gravity and... World War Z, and also a little budget, no-name no horror films like The Reeds and Gallo Walker, those I've heard of. I worked as a colourist, working in the uh, editorial and camera department. And my, my cohort on this filmic adventure is Dr Sam Knowles, not only my oldest friend, but also a published author uh, in English. He lectures English, he has a master's and a PhD in English. He knows all the big words about all the big theories, that makes this film, this podcast, more than just a film review show. So, this week, um, our film was The Monuments Men, which was chosen by me. Um, it's a film uh, released the, I don't know when exactly, but sometime at the beginning of last year, 2014. Yep. Um, and it features the escapades of a group of men who are too old or incapacitated in some other way to have joined the war, um, the Second World War, and have been um, drafted to form a, a, a renegade battalion of art gatherers, um, people who've been sent out, and they are headed by George Clooney, who himself is a professor of um, what well, looks like art history, although is it specified? I don't think it is. General art. Okay, gen- general art. Um, and he gathers his team together and they go off into Morton, France and um, Holland and also Belgium and then Germany in the last period of 1944 and then into 1945 trying to salvage art that's suffered um, the ravages of war. Rob, your thoughts? I really wanted to like this film. I really want. I really liked the cast. It's very good. I'm a big fan of George Clooney as a writer and director and an actor, but I didn't. It felt kind of, I suppose, baggy is the way I'd put it. Like the narrative was a bit kind of winding, confusing, and you didn't really get a lot of the what was on the line. And I thought that the ideas behind it was brilliant and the values that the film is trying to instill and try to put across are great. But the film itself, I felt, kind of lacked strong direction. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, at this point, Clooney's made a few films as a director and almost all of them come out the gate with a very strong, normally political, but often value-based message and morals. Um, and sometimes they work in the films like Ides of March and this time I felt it didn't quite work and kind of... It was just a bit of a not really interesting film, which is sad given the cast. You know, I'm a big fan of a lot of the cast, mm. but it felt like a, a film that could have been done better as a 10 part TV series. Yeah. Something like Band of Brothers, where you can take these guys and each week's a different, a different bit of it, because you've got so many different stories going on with Kate Blanchett mm. in France. You've got people there, people at the mine, people at the quarters, this group that kind of came together and then got split up. It felt like there were different stories going on, and it could have been stronger as, as a uh, as a TV show. That being yeah. said, 
I thought visually it was outstanding. I th thought that it looked beautiful. I think that all the characters, all the actors did great work with their roles. And I do think it did have a message which a lot of films lack. I just felt that as a, a cohesive bit of cinema, I was a bit at times bored. Mm. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with you. Those who were listening last week will know that I picked this one not not because I liked it, but because I hadn't seen it yet, and there was a chance to see it. It was, yeah, I, as you said, I really wanted to like it, because I do like all the people, um, all, all the actors in it, and there were parts that I thought were brilliant, but they didn't hang together. Um, and as you said, it would have been good to have a TV episode focused on each part. So the 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 sort of story between Kate Blanchett and Madoma, which I can't say properly, I can never say <laughs> properly. Uh, All right. But, but the, the sequence between them in Paris, I thought, was very good. Um, it didn't, but it didn't seem to fit with anything else. And you could have said the same about sort of moments between George Clooney and Hugh Bonifold, say, or between um, John Goodman and several of the other characters, that they just, it just didn't seem to fit together. Which I suppose is, is kind of one of the messages of the film, right? That it's about people who don't fit together and yet who still have a purpose. Yeah, I, I, I would, in, in, in its plus column, and I, I've mentioned this several times in the podcast, is that so many films these days are sold by hitting things hard and mm. that the physical violent victory is the end goal. And it was really refreshing to see a film of this sort of prestige and this size where it isn't about um, killing people. And yes, people do die. And yes, there are there is bits of violence on all sides. Um, but it's very much... A film that isn't at any point sold by violence. Mm. That, that, that's a very telling moment with, um, I think it's uh, Bill Murray's character and a German, clearly young soldier, who they kind of have this standoff in the woods where they kind of everyone got their guns pointed at each other, and mm. they just kind of sit down and chat and have a cigarette, and everyone goes on their own way. And it was really like I felt felt like at times the film was strained towards traditional tropes but I think that's more about me as an audience member expecting that mm. expecting a shootout expecting a chase expecting a a violent scene it's interesting you should pick that moment because that and, and the the German soldier doesn't speak English and the one thing he can say in English is John Wayne mm. and it's it's self-consciously modelled on the final shootout the good the bad and the ugly that triangle yes and yet there's no, it, there are guns, but there there are no guns being fired here. And it's an interesting, interesting take on that. Yeah, but I, I am, I am sort of scrabbling around to find things I liked about this, things to put into the plus column because, in general, I thought it was fairly dull. Yeah, and I, I, I would echo your comment of that. Lots of individual scenes were brilliant, and lots of individual moments were really good. Hmm. Um, and. But it just didn't handle. I mean, like the um, John Goodman's character, who has to stay with one of his compadres as as he passes away. Uh, he was brilliantly done. That whole scene, that whole storyline there was brilliant. But at no point did that storyline interrupt any other storyline. No. Um, no. And I really liked the John Goodman 
Jean, Jean Dujardin, who is the two characters, uh, storyline. I liked it, but I wasn't sure why I was there when the other over here, but it just felt, as you say, it didn't hang together. No, it was, um, yeah, I, was, I wasn't sure. I also wasn't sure about the fact that George Clooney was involved so much in this. So the the writing and the direction and the production and then at times it felt a bit a bit much like he wanted to do everything and this was a bit of a vanity project for him. Yeah, I think that I mean he he has in recent years kind of strayed a lot more into into writing and directing because he wrote well Good Night and Good Luck, Leatherheads, um, Ides of March, and then this. Uh, and he is, and he directed, I think, one film before that, uh, Confessions of a Dangerous mm. Mind. So he is of late stressing more interest, and they almost all went. The jobs are passion projects. I mean, you've got the they all seem to be sort of historical or political, or both. Mm. Um, and I think I mean, it does feel like very much like his his baby that he's putting on the screen. I think though a comparison is some with something like Argo, where that was. That was obviously written and directed and acted by a by a single figure, but it was so much more successful. It felt the the passion felt there, whereas this this felt a bit misplaced. Yes, yeah, I, I think as I was saying, when it hits, I mean, I really like Good Night and Good Luck. Um, I really like those much, um, but both Monuments Men and Leatherheads do suffer from the same sort of issue of just being a bit kind of. He loves all these little bits of stories. They couldn't build a proper story, mm. which I think is often a bit strange because a lot of things were changed from, from the true story of these of these men and of this group. A lot of things were changed to make it into this film, which you would assume would change for sort of narrative reasons, which is why it's so surprising when the narrative doesn't kind of come together. Hmm. Yeah. T- t- tell us a bit more about the story then, because it's it's based on a. It's based a on a non-fiction account. It's based on a book. Um, so I, I'm always a bit mistrustful of real-life stories based on a book made into a film because you've got two levels of, of possible changes going on there. And I, I must say, I don't know too much about the differences between the original story and, and the film. I know that it was much more of a British-led operation originally, um, having been started way back in uh, Libya in 1942. Um, where lovely in the in the film is portrayed very much as an American invention, and I think there's a whole podcast as we've done before on, on American cultural imperialism, especially mm. there's sort of revisionist history. So I think that there's there's a, 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 a bit of truth in the middle of it. A lot of the sort of all the stories that happen here happen in real life, um, but they've been sort of bounced around um, to fit story, and certain characters have been downplayed. And certainly, I know that there's a I can't remember his name, but there was a German um, who was also heavily involved, and he like defied Hitler to save all these things that the Americans then come and find. Mm. So I think they, there's a bit of kind of that whitewashing of history. Yeah. Some of it, I'm sure, serves narrative needs. Some of it serves cultural imperialism. One one thing I found was that there's this line, and there's no spoiler to say that to mention this line because something that. that happens again and again is someone will say um are are human lives more important than art is what you're doing worthwhile is there a value to what you're doing 
Yes. Um, because what are the people doing put their, putting their bodies on the line for things that mean something? Does this mean something? And I just... If that had been asked once, then I could have seen how this was a director who believed in that. I mean, I, I happen to believe in, in the the worth of art objects in this case. And I would have believed that the, the director would agree with me. But it just felt like the director was, or the screenwriter was belabouring a point. And I just wonder whether George Tony actually does believe that. Because of so much, that he was just going over it so much again and again. And maybe this is something about American imperialism, that actually there's an extent to which he was he was saying, yes, it's all very well and good to, to, uh, to side with this, to agree with this principle, but... Maybe we should we should fall back on the the principles of American imperialism. See, I I read that a whole different way to you. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought he was trying to make a point of art being important, but trying to apply that to film. Interesting, right? So, so my 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 thinking of it was that we kind of we separate art out into two categories very often: mm. um, the worthy and the unworthy. Um, and you've got. In this case, Madonna with Child, various or church uh, panels that are worthy art. Um, but generally, we don't consider things like films, comics, books, apart from a fair few, as, as worthy. That's the unworthy art. And I think that I read this as, as clearly saying a lot of things about modern art, modern art in a global term rather than current uh, sort of modern art as we know it. But that it's that. that art itself is transient and is worth protecting hmm. if you see what I'm saying and I think yeah. that's where his obsession with the past comes from the various things, it's about preserving this this modern history as well um, and I think that's that he touched on ideas of ownership and that sort of thing, and who owns art and I think in the, the modern digital age, age that becomes even more relevant and prevalent than before I hadn't really thought about the way he might be talking about film, but you're right, he does seem to have an attitude to, to film as an art that he's followed through his through mm-hmm. his film and his screenwriting projects as well. This is where I can claim some, uh, some name-dropping uh, film stories in that I once did have an evening watching one of Clooney's films with George Clooney in which we talked about film, and so I do know that the preservation of film is a thing that matters to him film as art form and, and the preservation of film Blang. yeah I'm, I'm well aware but at a certain point they it's just a person you work with yeah. um, anyway back 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 to us let's get away from name dropping yeah it, it was something something else I wanted to want to talk about um and this goes um I suppose goes back to your you, the idea that you brought up last week. Um, and you mentioned the inscription on the Statue of Liberty and it being um, something, that, a founding principle for America, this idea of the poor and the weak. There was, I don't remember, you, you gave me the inscription last week and now I've forgotten what it was. I can't remember offhand. I had it in front of me last week. But, uh... Okay. Well, there's some something about it. Depending on how fast you can Google, you can look it up now. Um, but, and this this was... The same idea of taking a disparate group of stragglers um, who happen to be sort of weighted towards the old, although um, in the case of Mervon, 
Um, it wasn't an old character. It was he. He had some sort of health impairment, which meant he wasn't able to fight. Um, but th that was. It was a, a sense of um, these, these, these. I suppose these these outcasts of society being brought together and contributing to something that, in in other war films, um, have been. It's been the preserve of the the healthy young is it American soldier maybe mm. that who who gets who who joins up and is sent off to war, and I thought that was interesting in this war film because it's a war film that's well again it's a something film that's not about that something but it's a war film that's not really about war, um, no. it's about other things and in this war film that's not about war you get soldiers who are not soldiers who do not fit this stereotype. So Sam, to kick it a bit wider, what uh, what trends and themes do you think the film threw up with you? Some something that I think um, the film did not deal with very well, and I think it's something that's interesting to think about is um, the idea of have, having a place of belonging um, and and sort of owning one's own self and owning one's own home, um, and it, Rob can name name drop. Uh, film stars, I'll just fall back on quoting Theodore Adorno. Um, and he wrote, as a part of morality, not to be at home in one's own home. And he knew what he was talking about, and he hadn't been to film screenings with George Clooney. He'd been, he, he was a, a displaced Jew himself who'd left Germany. Um, and that that was something that I didn't feel this film dealt with particularly well although there, there was that one scene um where murder and I, I'll, at, at some point i'll grow up but you know it may not happen um he comes <laughs> comes back to this ransacked house and rehangs a painting and says well this is the south of something and Kate Blanchett says they're gone like, you've got to accept this they're gone they're not coming back mm. and that was something that could have been pushed in that way, in that scene, and yet wasn't, uh, and that idea of um, that question raised about to whom these art pieces belong to was something that I felt was never really addressed in the film or addressed sufficiently. Yeah, I think there was a obviously Kate Blanchett character who is a a French collaborator slash resistance fighter who fight Matt Damon a lot on the idea of where these when they when they rescue these art pieces from the Germans, where are they going? Hmm. Um and all through the film that the, the Americans very much people should return them to where they came from. And they do succeed in doing that. Yeah that that's what I mean. They 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 they, they there's a lot of talk about returning them to I don't know, Salzburg or Vienna or whichever city they come from, but it's never Never say, oh, we have to return these to the people to whom they belong. Yes. I mean, I think there's, there's a, sort of a, quite a sort of strange dichotomy in the film, certainly, that particularly Hugh Bonneville's character talks a lot about these, these pieces of art belonging to the world, mm. uh, and they belong to humanity, but they yeah. also belong to a one small church in Salzburg. So it's kind of a... There's a, a tension there, and I think that that's one that museums around the world never quite manage to nail down perfectly, at least in my experience, of putting something in, you know, the New York Met makes it available to far more people in, around the world. 
but if it belongs to one German family, well, then who does it belong to? And I think that that's, that's a very interesting th thoughts around that, especially around in the modern day films and sort of ideas and stories of, of particularly the, the rise, I'd say, of fans. Mm -hmm. Especially in things like, I mean, to go very, very popular culture at the moment, something like Star Wars, where the fan culture around Star Wars is, is epic. But who do those films belong to? Do those films belong to George Lucas, who created them all? Do they belong to the directors who made them, who weren't George Lucas? Do they belong to Lucasfilm as a whole? Do they belong to Disney? Do they belong to the fans? And I think that there's, there's some interesting ideas around sort of ownership of film, especially ownership of art, shall we say, especially now that things live digitally. That And that's, that's something, as I said, that's something that, that I didn't feel was addressed by this film. Do you think that is something that has been successfully addressed in other films? I think... I think... No. I think the only film, this is a, a very strange one to throw in there, is a film called Fanboys, which was a kind of didn't go anywhere teen comedy about a kid with cancer going to try and see Phantom Menace before yeah. it was released because he was going to die before it came out. Mm. Um, it's a straight-up comedy. you know. It, it hasn't got any kind of higher morals than that. But it did deal with the idea of who whose films are these? You know, who, do, the, who, who does that belong to? Is it the fans who travelled for you know, four days across America to see this film, we've broken into Lucas Ranch. Do they have the right to these films? Who do they belong to? But I don't think that I don't think these questions are being asked currently, because yeah. we we are in in the birth of digital. Even even in our lifetime, I'm I'm, I'm thirty two and Sam's thirteen. Um, <laughs> Sam isn't thirteen. Sam's thirty one. <laughs> but uh, but really thirteen. Really thirteen. That's a long story. Ten out of time. But even in our lifetime. You know, I, I'm, I've I've gone from pure analog of, of of VHS and Betamax all the way through to having you know, the full digital experience of Netflix and iTunes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I don't think there's any other generation that's got through so many formats as no. our generation. I mean, there are there are things that have come in and things like mini discs that came in and were new and were amazing, and then mm. suddenly they're obsolete in the space of a few years. I, I have a mini player in my in my lounge currently because I, I, I I've managed to get I bought a stereo in the in the weird time when I've managed to get a tape deck in it and a mini player. It was clearly bought at the right moment in technology, but I don't think I think we talk about that. There is like I I have Netflix clout. Mm. I don't feel I own any of those films. No, but I do have some DVDs, and I own those films. Yeah, and I think there's in this day and age. There's an, a, a lost idea about ownership of art and ownership of film. And even in traditional art forms, you know, like like uh, Mary Lisa, most famous pitch in the, world, in the world. I've never seen that in real life. It's so, such an anticlimax. I, 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 I believe you. <laughs> I, can go, I, I can go on Google now and download a high resolution picture of it and look at it right now. Mm. So yeah. the question becomes, what is ownership of art these days? What 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 when we talk about ownership, what do we say? You know, books obviously being your forte, 
once the book's out there as a PDF or a Kindle or even just a Word file, is it still owned by the creator? See, that's that's an interesting thing because well, you've you've got a room full of various stuff. Of we've we've got a whole house full of books. Our, our house basically is like your library, um, but and and people will have a conversation with people fairly regularly. I mean, last had this conversation on at the weekend with someone who is a very intelligent man, but he's not. He doesn't really care about books. He's he's got degrees coming out of his ears, and he's now now a qualified doctor. Um, but he has no. He admittedly has no time for books, and is it is fascinated by the number of books we have in the house and we will we will talk about about how we, how you use a kindle and a book for different things and the fact that that both of us have kindles in the house doesn't preclude buying books and enjoying buying books no. and there's some, something that i have trouble getting over to people is how much I enjoy having books. And it's not... People try and justify books over Kindles by saying, oh, they feel nice and they smell nice and it's nice nice to turn the pages. And I agree a little bit with that. And I also find in terms of teaching from a book, it's much easier to teach from a physical book than teach from a Kindle. Um, But there's something else. There's, There's something... I'm not sure what it is about owning, a, and we were talking about pieces of art, but own, owning a book. This I, I like that something subconsciously that that pleases me about being able to look up now and see a couple of rows of books and know that that I own those books and could could take them and and read them. I'm not, mm. I'm not going to now because that would be a, a weird podcast. Um, but I could move, move Professor Moriarty to one side. What what we do, what we're dealing in in jokes. Let's just carry on. Um, <laughs> and I could pick up a book from my shelf. Um, but there's some, yeah, and I, and I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure why I feel that connection to a physical object of art, um, and why that's that's particularly important to me in what is, as you said, an increasingly digital age. I think I, mean, I, I, I can't claim any kind of difference here in that I'm currently looking at my VHS collection, and I collect VHS. I, I have a VHS, VHS collection that spans a couple of shelves in front of me, and there's some actual old film, old eight millimeter film at the top there. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in the collection of the physical thing, and I think that's where this links back to the idea that's just presented in Monuments Men, is that there's a preservation to it as well. Mm-hmm. I have Netflix, you know. Let's say, worst case scenario, Netflix goes under. Of course, will. Every, almost every company in the world at a certain point fades away. Be it Friends, to be it MySpace, be it Bebo, they all kind of go away eventually. Be it mm. Napster. And at some point, Netflix will be replaced by something else. And, you know, that th- there's a digital format. Whilst I love it and I enjoy the perks of a digital lifestyle, certainly, there's an inherent temporiness to digital. Mm. Uh, especially in, in, uh, for me to access Netflix, I am relying on a, a computer at my end, b a working phone line, c a, a an account with um, some internet provider, and d an account with Netflix. And Netflix d c e having that film. There's mm. so many more steps to me getting that 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 bit of art. Whereas if I wanted to watch Inception, I could walk two feet, pick it off the shelf, and put it in. 
and that's the whole process and i think yeah. there's there is something and this is obviously going to be me justifying my my vhs collection in many ways but uh, i think that there's something to be said for the preservation of it yeah the, the past five minutes was just me trying to justify the fact that i collect books that's fine but <laughs> I mean, in, a, in, a, in a general and true sense i bet you can look at your shelves and see books that you cannot get on kindle hmm. yeah and i can i can look at my vhs here and think the, the ones i keep and collect are the ones that are never going to be vhs and then they're going to make a dvd or blu-ray and the eight, eight millimeter films I have never even made it to VHS, let alone any further. So I think that there is a, a, a argument for the preservation of art. And I think that Clooney, whilst he's certainly laggy and loose in the narrative, is making a genuine point of that we don't know what the future is going to be. We don't know what the future is going to hold for humanity. Um, but we do have to preserve the art of um of our times of the past um there's something that should should give due credit here this is not something said by me i i watched watch this with my partner who was interested at times and not interested for most of it um as i was in fact but and she said that the she sort of thought the fundamental problem with this film is that it doesn't know what it is. There are bits of comedy and bits of drama and bits of classic war film and bits of western even. And I, I thought, write, writing down notes on it, I thought the second half was much better than the first half. I think maybe the film takes an hour or so to work out what it is and to work out that actually those questions that you're asking are the the focus of this film and the important thing about this film. It's one of those films that dresses up a, a, a question in this form of art and I don't think the film does enough to a answer or ask it, or ask it correctly. Mm. But I do think that there's a question there to be answered of what we do about art long term. And obviously it comes to a certain point, and this is entirely sort of left field comment, that we don't have enough space to keep everything. Mm-hmm. Every year that goes by, every day that goes by, more art is made. And what point do we stop keeping everything? And I think that this was obviously in no way addressed by the film, but I do think there's a a question to be answered there around: Do we just build a giant space warehouse, hmm. or what do we do? Because every year a new classic is born, and we just add that to the pile. And you're right. I mean, there was there was a story recently about someone not that this is art but it's it's the same idea someone just had to print out wikipedia and it mm. took um something like I do, i'm not going to pick a number because i'll be in order of magnitude wrong but it there was a photo of of a basically a room full of books of of this these these have many pages there were that he printed out and that's just one website and one yes interesting but not particularly um aesthetically valuable website and yet if uh, and what, what are we going to do with with things do we do we as you said do we keep everything do we do we catalog everything i think that's a, a place to leave it for the week that's a great question to ask and answer to take it even further do you do you have any recommendations for films kind of along these lines i, I have two recommendations this week Mm-hmm. Both along very similar lines. One of which is called The Rape of Europa. Now, The Rape of Europa is a 
I don't, know, I don't know when it was out, but it was 2006, even 2006. Basically, it's the documentary of this same story. So it's obviously going to be at the same time biased as any film is, but it isn't a narrative. It is literally a documentary of the same story about the Allies trying to minimise the Germans' plundering of, of works of art. Um, I'm, I haven't seen it myself, but I, I can't recommend it. Secondly, there's a 2009 film called The Art of the Steel. I watched this on a plane once because I was very bored and it seemed interesting. It was not in any way what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a heist movie. It isn't. I was about to say, I was tempted to go and watch it now if it's a heist movie. It's not a heist movie, no. It's a documentary uh, about the battle for control of an art collection. There's an infamous art collector uh, by the name of Dr. Albert C. Barnes. Uh, who over years amassed a, a massive collection of modern art and and uh, some sort of things, and I, when he passed away, um, it's about the the, um, the battle for control of that collection. So it says the same things about art and about who owns art and what do, what's the point of art and that kind of thing. And so there's some interesting questions raised in it. I think with the documentary, once again, obviously they're they're all kind of. They don't have the same narrative heft of a nice tidy up at the end. Mm. Um, but it does do a better job at answering some questions. I've got two as well. I actually wrote down the third as we were talking. Um, I can't really recommend that because I haven't seen it. Um, did you see Woman in Gold? Because no. it strikes me that's asking me. Okay, well, neither of us have seen that. Fine. So maybe that's an awful recommendation. But that's also about uh, about art and ownership and... Jewish identity. Um, so the two ones, people will know that um, I generally have an obvious one and a not so obvious one. So the obvious one this week in terms of sort of ensemble cast war related films is um, Inglorious Bastards. Um, and I think um, we, we make a point of mentioning Quentin Tarantino as much as possible, but I do think Tarantino has got something right that Clooney just misses and it's to do with that idea that this film Monuments Man doesn't really know what it is um, and Inglourious Bastards seems to know what it is and it's a it's a very successful and very funny film um, and the Monuments Man you have that the scene in, in the mine with I'm not going to mention his name again but he, he stands on a, on a landmine and then they have that sort of almost slapstick-like scene where they have to try and save him and then they have a a quasi-touching, well, genuinely touching moment. And then um, you have the resolution of that. And that's something, that movement from comedy into drama and back again is something that I think Quentin Tarantino has just nailed in a way that George Clooney doesn't quite. Mm. Um, And then my second one is... um, it was sort of I enjoyed it unexpectedly because it was from a time when um you don't really expect good films to come out. It was the the doldrums at the end of last year. Um and I went into it with not particularly high expectations, although um well actually it, it does share an actor with Inglorious Bastards and he was one of the only reasons I wanted to watch it. Um is the film Big Eyes. The end, from the end of last year, which oh, yes. is a much better film about 
arts and ownership. Um, although it does serve Amy Adams in, and I could, I just can't stand Amy Adams. But Christopher Waltz is brilliant. Um, and there are lots of other good things to, to recommend about this film. So I would, I would say that, that would be one to check out. Excellent. I will check that one out. I haven't seen that last one there. If you want to get in touch with either of us on Twitter, you can do so on the joint account, which is at Prestige Podcast, or my personal one, which is at Life underscore Academic. Or you can find me at Rob Kaiju. Next week, Rob, it's your choice. What are we going for? We're going for buying up to date, and we're going to go and see Ant-Man, the latest release from the Marvel Studios, starring Paul Rudd as the titular... I enjoy um, going to see that, and I believe you've seen it already. I have. I saw it last night. We'll have a chat. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.